So if you will, go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We'll get a Bible into your hand. Matthew chapter 19. We pick up uh, the story in verse 16. Matthew writes, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good shall uh, I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your mother and father, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, All these I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you, Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wife or children or lands, for my sake, shall receive a hundredfold and receive uh, and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So if you're visiting this morning, we've been taking a very close look at the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we're looking at all that the Holy Spirit had moved upon Matthew to record in regards to uh, the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, we look to the Word of God in order to gain wisdom. Right, And we expect that the Lord will meet us this morning and reveal himself to us through his word and give us wisdom and give us understanding this morning. We look to God's word and trust the Lord to give us insight into Christianity and to enable us and to empower us to walk the walk that God has called us to as pilgrims and strangers in this world. And so these are some of the reasons that we study the word of God and we submit ourselves to the word of God. And in our study this morning, we come to the story of the rich young ruler. And we want to understand that this event takes place in the final weeks of Jesus's life before he goes to the cross and pays the penalty our sins deserve before he dies on the cross, before he's buried and before he's resurrected three days later. And this conversation that Jesus has with this rich young ruler is actually recorded 
in three of the four Gospels, right? It's recorded for us here in the Gospel of Matthew, as well as Mark and in Luke. And Matthew tells us that this man was young and that he was rich. He had great possessions. And Luke tells us that he was a ruler. And this is why this man is referred to as the rich young ruler. And in verse, nine, uh, verse 16, Matthew writes, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And you have to kind of get a feeling for what's going on here in this story. You need to remember that there's this very, very large group of people that are uh, following Jesus at this time. And this crowd is so large, Matthew describes it as great multitudes, plural, that have gathered around Jesus. And the religious leaders, they've come to test Jesus by asking him about a very theologically controversial issue, right? And that is that they ask him about divorce. And then Jesus takes them back to the word. And, and uh, you know, he, he, he takes them back to the word and he shares with them God's plan for marriage. And after his teaching on marriage, Jesus gets around to this question that they raise about divorce. And he says, divorce stems from a hardness of heart, right? Ultimately, it results from a hard heart, a heart that's grown hard towards a spouse as well as towards God. And immediately following Jesus's teaching on marriage and divorce, people begin to bring their children to Jesus in order that he might lay hands on them and bless them. And he takes them up in his arms, right? He has them uh, on his lap, maybe. He's laying hands on them and he's praying a blessing upon them. And as these things are taking place, here comes this rich young ruler. It's believed that he's probably a ruler of a synagogue, that that's what it's referring to as a, re as a ruler. In Mark's gospel, we read that this man ran to Jesus and knelt before him. It's very important for this man to get to Jesus, to have an audience with Jesus. So that's why he's running to Jesus. And when he gets to Jesus, he prostrate, prostrates himself before him. He humbles himself and bows before him. He's not concerned about what other people think about him. You know, and if he is a ruler of a synagogue, if that's what it means, this term ruler, if that's what it means, he doesn't care who sees him. He's not concerned about what others may think of him as a spiritual leader. You know, he's not concerned for his reputation at this point. What he's concerned about, you know, is getting to Jesus. And again, Publicly identifying with Jesus at this time is dangerous because, you know, the religious leaders at this time, they're currently plotting how they can put Jesus to death. And you know what? This, this rich young ruler, he's not concerned with any of those things. You know, he's not thinking about anyone else that's around him. At this moment, his only concern is the Lord. And you know, you would be wise this morning 
if you weren't thinking about anyone else? Where are you with the Lord, right? doesn't matter where they are with the Lord. Where are you with the Lord? That's the important question. What's going on with you and him? This man came to Jesus, knelt before him, and said, verse 16, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And you know what? You read that, and I just say, man, this guy is ripe for the picking, right? I mean, that's the kind of witnessing experience we want to have with others where they come up to us, to us and ask us, hey, what do I have to do to be saved? You know, as, as I was thinking over, I'm trying to think over the last 26 years of ministry. And, and, you know, I don't think anybody has come to me and asked me, what must I do to be saved? I mean, what an open door. It appears that this young ruler is so ripe for salvation. And he's come to the right person. He's come to Jesus Christ. We read in Acts 4.12, For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This rich young ruler has done the right thing in coming to Jesus. He comes to Jesus regarding the most important issue of life. And the issue that we'll do well if we'll ponder and think through, right? It's the issue of eternal life. What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? The problem, though, is this young man is looking to do something to gain eternal life, right? He thinks he can earn it. That was the Jewish mindset uh, of the day, and, and that's still the way it is today, right? The, the Orthodox Jew is trying is seeking to keep 613 commandments. And if they can do it in their mind, that's what makes them acceptable to God, right? That's the basis upon which they can approach God, their own righteousness, right? So they pay very close attention to meticulously fulfilling 613 commandments. I mean, can you imagine trying to manage, right, uh, all 613 commandments of the law of Moses. I mean, that's a task. And like this rich young ruler, the Jews in Jesus' day held to this concept of a works-based righteousness with God. They were looking for something that they can do in order to receive eternal life. And in a similar way, you know, many people in our culture today, you know, they want to know what they can do to be accepted by God. They're not seeking to, uh, you know, fulfill any commandments. They just hope that their good deeds in life are going to outweigh their bad deeds, right? The things that they've done that aren't very good. People think that somehow good people should go to heaven because they do good things. And bad people, well, they should go to hell because they do bad things. I mean, that's where they belong. But that's not the way it works, right? That's an improper understanding of eternal life. Paul said, Ephesians 2, 8, he said, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any uh, one should boast. Salvation cannot be gained by good works. 
It's by grace that a person is saved. Grace is unmerited favor. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. In fact, each of us deserves judgment, right? But grace is getting what you don't deserve. It's grace. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense, right? It's a gift. You know, it's only through faith in Christ that you gain favor with the Father, You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't do anything for it. It's a gift. But there's something inside of man. And it even slips into our Christian experience where we want to do something. You know, throughout our entire life, our whole lives, we've been brought up to think if you do something, then you should receive a reward, right? Good behavior, results in good rewards. But when it comes to eternal life, we can't do anything to give, to gain it, right? We can't, there's no work, there's no amount of works that we can do that we can earn eternal life. In fact, one time, the multitudes were crowding around Jesus, John 6, 28, and they asked him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? They said to Jesus, tell us We want to know, right? What works, plural, can we do to gain God's favor? And the next verse, John 6, 29, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. They wanted to know the works, plural, they could do to gain God's favor. And Jesus said the work singular that's pleasing to God is believing on him who he sent. The work that's pleasing to God is believing in Jesus Christ, placing your faith in him. The Philippian jailer, you might recall, he was suicidal. He's ready to take his own life, right? Instead of having to answer for a prison full of criminals that have escaped. And, you know, Paul and Silas, they cried out to him and said, wait, none of the prisoners are gone. They're all here. And the Philippian jailer, he grabbed a a lantern. He ran through the jail there uh, in Philippi. And he fell down trembling before before Paul and uh, Silas. In Acts 6.30, the Philippian jailer says to Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, well, you need to join Calvary Chapel Truckee. You know, become a regular tither. You need to be present every Sunday morning and take part on Saturday uh, evening prayer meetings. Oh yeah, you got to go to the men's prayer, uh, men's study uh, too. And uh, if you can do all of that, then you'll be saved. You know, that's not what he said, right? When the Philippian jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? Paul said, Acts 6.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Your faith can't save your family. They need to place their own faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. But Paul is saying your saving faith will have an unmistakable effect on your whole household. What must we do? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's get back to our story. This man comes to Jesus and is looking for something that he can do in order to gain eternal life. And Jesus you know, draws him a little deeper into this understanding of salvation, verse 17. So he said to him, why do you call me good? 
No one is good but one. And that's God. You know, two things we want to see here. Jesus is revealing to this rich young ruler two things. Both are absolutely essential for salvation. First, uh, Jesus reveals to him man's sinfulness. And it's absolutely essential. For a person to be saved, they need to understand their sinfulness, right? When we're witnessing to, to others, we, we need to bring people to the place where they understand that they've fallen short of God's glory, right? And that it's their sin that separates them from the love of God. And a holy God must, a holy God must judge sin or else he wouldn't be holy or righteous, the second thing Jesus reveals to this rich young ruler, and it's absolutely essential, is his deity. It's absolutely essential that a person believes that, that Jesus Christ is God, right? They need to believe in his deity. This is necessary in order to be saved. And we're going to establish this in just a moment. Jesus asks this rich young ruler a question to get him to understand these two points. He says, why do you call me good? No one's good, but one. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 7.20, there is not a just or, in other words, a righteous man on earth who does good and does not sin. Ecclesiastes 7.20 is a verse you want to use when you're witnessing to the Jew. You know, you can't take them to the New Testament because they don't accept the New Testament uh, as Scripture. Ecclesiastes 7.20 is the Old Testament equivalent of Romans 3.23, which says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. These verses reveal man's sinfulness. All mankind is guilty before God. And Jesus here is revealing to this man who seems to be seeking after eternal life, no one's good. We're all sinners, right? And the word sin in the Greek is the word hamartia, and it just means to miss the mark. And that's the, that's the state, that's the condition of all of us. We've all missed the mark. We've all sinned. All of us have come short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter who you are this morning. You've transgressed God's commandments, right? You've fallen short of his holy standards. So Jesus reveals to this man that no one's good. And then Jesus reveals to him his deity. No one is good but one. That is God. You know, let's take a second or two to logically think through what Jesus is saying here. Because he's either saying that he's no good or he's saying, I'm God. And Jesus said, uh, this guy, actually, this guy comes to Jesus saying, good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? He's trying to get the wheels to, to turn. He's trying to get the guy to connect the dots. Do you understand what you're saying? Right? No one is good. Everyone has fallen short, except for one. There is one that's good, and that's God. Why are you calling me good? Do you understand? Do you realize who it is now? that you're talking to. Jesus said in John, he said, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And that's a pretty heavy statement. I am is a claim of deity because it's the name of God. There at the burning bush, you remember uh, Exodus 3, 14, Jesus, uh, you know, he said to Moses, I am who I am. 
And Jesus said in John 8, 58, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. It's an unmistakable claim of deity. And Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. You see, it's only God in flesh who could make atonement for our sins once and for all. Jesus Christ bridged the gap. He spanned the gulf between a holy God and sinful man. And the Bible tells us that it was God in Christ reconciling man to himself, not imputing his sins against him. It's when you come to Christ, placing your faith in him, that's when God forgives you of your sins. He doesn't hold them against you any longer. And it's at that moment, the Holy Spirit enters into the heart of that person and they become born again. They're brought into a right relationship with God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. So these are the two very essential things that Jesus reveals to this young ruler, you know, this man who's seeking eternal life. And both are, again, very essential if you're going to receive eternal life. But then Jesus says something that might be a little bit startling when you first read it. Jesus says, but if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Doesn't that hit you as a little strange at first reading? I mean, what's Jesus saying? Is he saying that you can enter into everlasting life through keeping the commandments? Well, the truth is, yeah, that's exactly what he's saying. <laughs> you know, wait, wait a minute, Gary. Did I hear you correctly? I mean, someone can, can keep the commandments of God and enter into everlasting life. And again, yes, that's the answer. That's what he's saying. If you keep all the commandments of God, you could gain eternal life. All you have to do is keep every single one, right? And never, ever make a mistake. All you have to do, as Jesus said, is to be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's all it takes, and you'll receive eternal life. You know, if you can keep every single one of those commandments perfectly and never slip up, hey, guess what? You'll be accepted into heaven, right? And what Jesus is trying to do here through all of this is to lead this young man to the place where he might recognize that he's not okay. You know, Jesus is trying to get this young man to understand that he's a sinner in need of a Savior. And at this point, this man doesn't see Jesus as a Savior. He doesn't see him as a Messiah. He just sees him as a good teacher. So Jesus is seeking to reveal to this man his inability to approach God by keeping the commandments. Jesus is seeking to reveal to this man his inability to be perfect. Hey, just keep all the commandments. And if you can do that, you're good to go. You know, if Jesus were to say that to one of us, you know, just keep God's commandments and then you'll have eternal life. We, we would immediately think, man, there's no way on earth I could do that. It's completely hopeless. You know, I've already blown it. I blew it before I came to church this morning. You know, and but we look at how this young man responds, right? In verse 18, he, he said to him, he says to Jesus, which ones? Which commandments? And you can almost see this man 
you know, thinking through, looking back over his life, thinking, when I was a child, I went to Hebrew school. I memorized the Torah. And, and just as a side note, that was common for kids in Israel. That was common. You know, adults were so serious about teaching their kids the Word of God, they had them memorize the first five books of the Bible by the time they were eight or nine years old. Oh, we can't do that. You know, I've tried, you know, and it's just so hard for my kid. I mean, his mind just wanders. She's not able to, to do it, I don't think. Come on, sweetie, one more time. John 3.16, come on, you know. Uh, you these parents were so serious about what it says about hiding God's word in their heart. And again, you can almost see this guy, you know, in, in your mind. He, he's just thinking the wheels are turning, you know, and he, he's thinking, hmm, keep the commandments. Um, which ones? You know, I, I know them all, but which are the ones that I need to keep, right? And Jesus picked the second table of the law that was given to Moses. Moses was given two tablets. The first tablet uh, dealt with man's relationship with God. And the second was having to do with man's relationship with his fellow man. So Jesus picks from the second tablet of the law, verse 18 and 19, and says, how about you shall not murder? You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And by the way, the word honor there, it means to give that person the highest possible respect that one person can give to another. That's how we're to view our parents. No matter how old they are, no matter how old we are, that's how we're to view our parents. That's what God's called us to do, right? To respect our parents with the highest possible respect that one person can pay towards another. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbors yourself, uh, which is really the summary of the whole second tablet of the law. If you're loving others as you love yourself, you know you're not going to transgress any of these commandments. And in verse 20, the young man said to Jesus, all these things I've kept from my youth, right? Again, you can almost see this guy thinking through what Jesus is saying. I wonder which commandments, which ones, you know, are the ones he's talking about. And Jesus picks something that's so simple. This is perhaps probably the first scripture, you know, this man has memorized as a child, the Ten Commandments. You know, and he says, wait a minute. All these things I've done from my youth. And again, you know, the way the Jews viewed the law, they saw it in such a way that they interpreted it physically, Right? And as a result of that, they saw themselves as very righteous. They read the law, thou shalt not murder. I've never murdered anyone. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You know, I've never slept with a woman that wasn't my wife. Still, me? You know, and I'm a Hebrew. You think I'm some kind of pagan? You know, lie? Of course not. Covet? No way. Never. Right? And we see this in Paul's life. When he gave his testimony in Philippians 3, 5, and 6, Paul said, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, 
persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Right? Paul was saying in regards to the law, I was absolutely blameless, totally righteous. Right? And this is the way the Jews saw themselves. And this is the way they interpreted the law. But we know that the law is not intended to make a man righteous. The Bible tells us that the law was given to show men that they were guilty. Right? Read Romans. Paul spends three chapters in Romans establishing the fact that we're all sinners. The law doesn't make a man righteous. And Romans chapter 3 finishes up and says that the law brings the whole world to the place where they're guilty before a holy God. As human beings, you know what? We've all transgressed God's law, right? We've all failed to keep his commandments. We've all broken his law. And Paul goes on in that chapter and he says that it's through the law that we gain a knowledge of sin, right? It's when I place my life alongside the, the law that I realize, man, I'm a sinner. I've transgressed. I've dishonored my mother and father. You know, I've had other things in my life before God. I've taken the Lord's name in vain. I've hated others. And Jesus said, if you hate a person in your heart, you're just as guilty as if you murdered them. You know what? I've lusted after women. And Jesus said, if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, you're just as guilty as, you, as if you've committed adultery with that, that woman, right? The law was given to show us that we're all sinners. Not that we will look at it and say, well, you know what? I'm really actually doing better than that guy over there, Right? I'm really doing pretty good. What's that? Have no other gods before God? That's me. I'm right on course. Right? Don't take the Lord's name in vain? Never have. But just the opposite. When you look at the Ten Commandments in the light of God's uh, purpose in giving them, you'll walk away saying, woe is me. You know what? Lord, help me. I'm a sinner. And James, the half-brother of, of our Lord, James 2.10, he writes, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. If you're trying to be righteous through keeping the law, if you fell in one little area, then you're just as guilty as if you've broken every one of the commandments. Paul said in Galatians that the law was like a school teacher. I mean, we send our kids to school. The teacher comes alongside them, helps them with their writing, you know, teaches them history, uh, corrects their papers, right? And Paul says the law is like a school teacher that would come alongside of us and point us to Jesus Christ. You know, that we would place our faith in him and be saved. And in doing so, we are then justified by faith, it says Galatians 4. The law is like a school teacher bringing us to Christ. David said that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, right? That's the effect the law should have on us, right? We're sinners. We need a savior. Let me share one more scripture that goes hand in hand in this. And you remember uh, what Jesus said, Mark 2, 17. Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician. Now, how many of you go see a doctor when you're feeling great? You know, hey, doc, you know, I don't need to see you today. 
you know, there's nothing wrong with me. I just felt like I needed a drop of $40 copay, you know. Uh, I never saw a patient that didn't need my help, okay? And Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, right? It's when you're sick, you recognize that you need a physician, and it's when you recognize you're a sinner, that's when you realize that you need a savior. Well, Gary, I'm glad that works for you. I'm glad you found something that, that works for you. No, it needs to work for you too. If you're sick, no, you are sick. Not if, you are sick. Everyone is sick and dying with this disease called sin. And we're in need of a savior. And Jesus said, Mark 4, 27, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Jesus also said, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, over one person who sees their need to repent and repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance, right? When a person realizes that they're a sinner in need of a savior and they turn from their sins, and that's just really the meaning of repentance, it just means you're heading this way, you turn from your sins, you turn around, go the other way, you turn towards God and you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your savior. When a person does that, Jesus says that it's a cause for great joy in heaven, right? Heaven rejoices over one decision when it's made to turn to Jesus. Well, this rich young ruler uh, didn't see it, right? He says in verse 20, all these things I've kept from my youth. And again, you want to try to see the scene in your mind, right? This young man kneeling down there before Jesus. Kids have been brought to Jesus in order that he might pray for them and bless them. You know, there still may be a, a child or two on Jesus's lap. And this young ruler, rich young ruler, he says to Jesus, wait a minute. You know what? All these things I've done from my youth, what do I still lack? Right? Why am I still lacking? He recognized that there was still lacking in his life. Something was lacking. And you know, the scripture teaches that there's a God-shaped void in, in each one of us. Right? And only Jesus can fill that void. He's the only one that can fill that emptiness inside our hearts. And this particular man was a young man. You know what? We live in a culture today that is obsessed with youth. I mean, people are trying so hard to stay young, exercising, eating organic, watching their diet, spending billions on makeup and plastic surgery, because that's what, where they think true life is, right? And yet we see a generation of the youth like we've never seen in the world before. Suicide rates higher today than they've ever been in the history of the world. Depression, darkness, and death. I mean, it reigns among the youth in our culture. This particular man was not only young, but one of the gospels says, as you piece these gospels together, one of them tells us that he was very rich. Matthew uh, verse 22 here in our story, Matthew says that he had great possessions. He was very rich. And there are those that would say, hey, it's not youth. That's not where you're going to find fulfillment, right? 
you know, working on, out and eating right, that's not what it's all about. It's possessions. It's wealth. It's riches. That's where fulfillment lies. You know, if you just had this or if you just had that, and, and then you would be fulfilled. The only problem is you just need a little bit more. You know what? It's all just a carrot on the stick. I mean, as hard as you're going after it, you never seem to be able to reach it. And honestly, I think if you, uh, you know, ever did get all the possessions that you could possibly want, if you ever amassed all the, the great wealth of the world, you would still feel miserable and empty inside. Just look around. You know what? You see tremendous emptiness in successful people, businessmen and women, right? Recording artists, actors, athletes. You always are reading about drug abuse in their lives, suicide, divorce. You know, and I was thinking about this. You know who I thought about? Jeff Bezos. All the money in the world, Bill Gates. All the money in the world, unhappy in their marriage. They get divorced, right? Money, fame, recognition doesn't begin to fill the emptiness in anyone's lives. And we're so foolish to fall for it. If we could just travel a little more, you know, maybe visit Europe. You know, wouldn't our marriage be great if we could just go to Hawaii? If only we could get a new car, then life would be perfect. You know what? I think a new house there on the lake, we could sit outside on the patio, out there by the creek, do our devotions. You know, then life would be, you know, just wonderful. It, we'd be just so happy, right? No, you'd be just as empty. These things only bring, at best, temporary satisfaction. They can't fill the void. We read in this, we read that this particular young man, you know, he was a ruler. He was a young man. He was a ruler. He was very, very successful at a young age. I mean, if he was on eHarmony, he would get all these swipes right, you know? Uh, but, hey, it's crazy to me. It's amazing to me how many people in the world today are seeking to be successful while their lives are passing them by. You know what? They live for success. They give themselves to success while their family goes down the drain, while the kids go down the drain. You know, they live for the business. They live for that position. They live for that upgrade at work. They live for that promotion. This man was very successful. He was a ruler, and yet he was also very empty. What am I still lacking? Right? And Jesus said to the woman of the well, you remember the story. He said, if you drink of this water, the waters of this world, you're going to thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I have to give, you'll never thirst. Right? It'll, it will well up inside of you like a spring, a fountain of everlasting life. And you'll have these torrents, you'll have these rivers of living water pouring forth from your innermost being. But if you drink of the water of this world, you're going to thirst again. It's only Jesus who can satisfy the deep longing in our lives. And I pray if you're here today or watching online and you don't know Jesus is the only one who's going to bring satisfaction to your life, lasting satisfaction. I pray that, you know, God would give you wisdom that, because he is the only one that can fill us and forgive us of our sins. For those of us that are believers this morning, you know what? 
I know how easy it is to slip um, into looking for something to meet our needs in our lives other than the Lord. And I'm telling you this morning, it's only the Lord. You know what? You don't need a vacation. You don't need a change of location. You don't need a new wife or a new husband. You need the Lord. You need time with the Lord. Time alone, just you and him. That's why people are so dry and empty as they fail. That's why Christians are so dry and empty. They fail to give time to the Lord. You know, boy, I just need a change of scenery. No, you don't. You need the Lord. Man, I just need a new job. You know, that's, that's the problem. That's what's wrong. No, you need the Lord. You need to give him first place in your life. In verse 21, Jesus said to this rich young ruler, and when you piece all the gospels together, you see Jesus saying, the reason you're lacking. Here in Matthew's gospel, he says, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be complete, if you want to be filled, go and sell what you have and give to the poor. and You'll have treasure in, the, in heaven and come and follow me. What's Jesus saying here? You know, many people read this and think, does Jesus expect me to sell everything I have and put it in the tithe box here this, this morning? Is that what you're teaching, Gary? You know, we have to sell everything we have and give to the poor? Is that the only way that we can be saved? No, I don't believe that's what Jesus is saying at all. Not at all. Well, what's he saying then? Because that's what it seems like he's saying, right? I think, again, what we need to understand is what's happening here right? And that is Jesus is placing his finger on this man's God. Jesus has a way of doing that. Jesus is putting his finger on what this man is living for. I mean, just think back again to the woman at the well. Jesus told her, you know, about the water that he had to give. And then he said to her, hey, go call your husband and, and come back and, and we'll talk. And she said, you know, I I have no husband. And Jesus said, you're right in saying that. You've had five husbands, and the guy you're living with right now, he's not your husband. And she kind of gulps like, oh, um, I perceive you're a prophet. <laughs> All of a sudden, it clicked. God was working, and he placed his finger on her sin. God has a way of doing that. Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus lovingly looked at this man. He lovingly looked at him and said, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be complete, let go of your gods. Sell what you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. That's what you're lacking. Repent of your sin and come and follow me, and you'll no longer be lacking, Jesus says. You'll find everlasting life. You'll find what you're looking for. The term everlasting life shows up 50 times in the scriptures. And in every single case, it speaks first and foremostly of a quality of life. And then secondly, of a duration of life, right? And Jesus is saying to this man, the quality of life that you're looking for is found in me. Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and that you may have it uh, more abundantly. And that quality of life you're looking for is only found in me. 
laying down your life, holding nothing back and following me. In doing that, you'll find that quality of life you're looking for. Jesus says, I'll fill that void that's inside of you, right? And not only will you experience that quality of life you're looking for, but you'll also experience that duration of life, right? It's a fact, and it's an inescapable fact. We're all going to live eternally. The question is, where are we going to spend that time? Where are we going to spend eternity? All of us are going to live eternally. It's either going to be eternal, everlasting life, or it's going to be everlasting destruction. Everlasting life in the presence of the Lord, enjoying His glory, or it's everlasting separation from the Lord spent in the outer darkness. It all hinges on you pondering eternal life. It all hinges on you and who you consider Jesus Christ to be. The Savior, the Son of God, or just another good teacher. It all hinges on your decision whether or not you're going to lay down your gods, whether or not you're going to lay down what you're living for and follow Jesus, right? Jesus said no one can serve two masters, and it's true. You can't, right? You can't serve God and riches. For either you'll hate the one and love the other, or else you'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You can't live for both. So God calls us to lay down all other gods, right? To turn away from anything and everything that would keep us from coming to Jesus, and he calls us to repent and be converted that our sins may be blotted out so times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, right? When we make the decision to follow after Jesus, God forgives us of our sins. We're brought into a right relationship with the Father. Do you know that Psalms 7, 11 says, God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day? I mean, man, that's a pretty heavy-duty verse, isn't it? You know? But isn't it great to come to know Jesus, to realize that God is no longer angry, angry with you because of your sin? Yeah, to know that he, when he looks at you now, when he sees you, he says, my child, you're forgiven. Isn't it wonderful to hear him say, enter into the joy of the Lord both now and for all eternity, right? Well, verse 22, we read that this young man heard that saying and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He, he chose his great possessions over the great one of Israel. What a foolish decision, right? He chose his temporary earthly possessions over the eternal God. What a foolish decision. He was standing face to face with everything he wanted and he chose stuff over substance. Mark 8, 6, Mark 8, 36 and 37, Jesus asked the question, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? This man said, I'll take possessions, thank you. I'll take what's behind door number one. And you know what? He, he loses. He lost out. Ultimately, we, we don't know what happened to this man. At this point, all we know is that he went away sorrowful. And don't you know that that just broke the Lord's heart? 
Jesus looked at this man and he loved that man, it says in Mark's gospel. And he says, the reason you're lacking, the reason you're so empty is because you need to lay down, right, that God that you're living for and come and follow me and you'll find forgiveness. You'll find fulfillment. How it must have broke the Lord's heart to see this man turn around and walk away. In verse 23, as this man walks away, Jesus turns and says to his disciples, Surely I say to you that it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Understand this. Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. He didn't say it was impossible. Right? But sadly, this rich young ruler, you know, he wasn't focusing on what he was going to gain by letting go of his God and following Jesus, you know, becoming saved. Sadly, what he was focusing on is what he was going to have to give up. You know what? Jesus doesn't ask us to give anything up that's good for us, right? He only asks us to give those things that hold us back, right? That drag us down, that keep us from um, following after him. And you know what I find ironic is how often someone refuses to give something up to follow Jesus, and then five or 10 or 20 years down the road, they've lost it all anyway, right? They, 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 they try so hard to hang on to this, right? For some, they hold on to these things right up to the moment they die, and then death separates it from all of it, right? They, they try so hard to hang on to something that, you know, they... they left at death's door. And then they enter into a horrible eternity facing God's wrath, his judgment. And it doesn't have to be that way. Verse 24, and again I say to you, Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now Jesus is speaking here of the eye of a literal needle. You know that Needle, right? I mean, here in Matthew and also in Mark's gospel, Jesus is talking about a sewing needle. In Luke's gospel, Luke, the physician, the doctor, he interprets what Jesus is saying as a surgical needle. Don't fall for that nonsense that there was, you know, some gate in Jerusalem, some little bitty gate in Jerusalem where a camel could squeeze through the gate. It just took a lot of work. Right? You know, there's no amount of effort a man can expend in order to make his way into the kingdom. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 25, when his disciples heard Jesus saying, it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom, they were greatly astonished. And the reason why the disciples were so shocked at this saying of Jesus is because in Judaism, they taught that riches were a sign of God's favor. If, you're, if you walked with God, if you kept his commandments, then God would bless your flocks. He would bless your herds. He would bless your home. Your wife wouldn't be barren. You know, God would give you increase. It was a prosperity doctrine, very much like that which has crept into the church today, right? If you have enough faith, you'll never be sick. You know, you can speak your own reality into existence if you just have enough faith. I think about how many Christians say, I'll be a monkey's uncle. And watch out, right? You know, 
hey, it's just not true. There are plenty, there are many, many on-fire Christians who struggle physically and are sick, right? There are believers who struggle financially. They love the Lord with all of their heart, and they have a greater depth and spirituality that's, that's greater than I, I could ever hope for. Right? There are wonderful Christians across the world that are facing death today, trusting Christ, saying to him, Lord, if you want me, I'm yours. Right? Struggles or the lack of struggles is not an indication of God's approval or disapproval on one's life. Verse 25, when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. This is Jesus' commentary on a works-based righteousness. No amount of works, right, will result in the removal of the stain of sin upon our lives, right? With man, salvation is completely, 100% impossible to achieve. But... God has made it possible through faith in Jesus Christ. No one is beyond hope. Salvation is offered to all through Jesus Christ and faith in him. And what we learn from the rich young ruler is you can't get to heaven simply by doing. Verse 27, then Peter answered and said to him, see, we've left all and followed you. Therefore, what should we have? I mean, he's just got to love Peter. I mean, his wills are turning. He's thinking these things through too in his head. In verse 28, Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This was a, a promise specifically for the 12 uh, disciples, the apostles, right? Uh, verse 29, though, is a promise to the rest of us. And it's one that I hold very close to my heart. And everyone who has left houses, brothers, sisters, or family, or mother, or wife, children, or lands, for my sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. What Jesus is saying here is no one will ever give up anything in this life and not receive something of far greater value in this life and in the life to come. What we receive is a relationship with the Father and an eternity with the Lord and enjoying his glory. Jesus said that people, you know, they, they don't come to him because they love the darkness more than light. That's the bottom line. Salvation is offered to all. And you know what? The question is, why try out? Why try to hang on to something you can't keep. Give it up. Lay it down. Whatever it is that's holding you back in order that you might receive something that you can't lose, right? Something that you can enjoy for all eternity. Why not tell the Lord, if you're not a believer here this morning, if you're watching online and you're not a believer, maybe you're a Christian and, and you know what? Your walk isn't where it's supposed to be. Why not tell the Lord this morning, that you're willing to make him, to make Jesus the master passion of your life? Why not tell him today that you're willing to turn from your sin and your selfishness, that you're willing to turn to Jesus and trust him for your eternity? 
why not ask the Lord today to come into your life and ask him to give you his spirit to empower you to live for him on a daily basis. You know, if you will, he'll respond by coming into your life. You know, but he's only going to do it by invitation. That's the only way that Christ comes into a person's life. You know what? People need to understand. We all need to understand. Repentance is a privilege. You know, not just because it affects our eternity, but because it opens the door for this wonderful relationship with God Almighty. That's the abundant life, right? If you're here this morning and you'd like to receive the Lord, you know, I'd like to pray with you. Come up afterwards and, and we'll pray. You know, answer any questions you have. Help you get started with your walk with Jesus. Let's go ahead and bow our heads and, and just pray. Lord, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. And Lord, I know that there are many people here that are believers that are doing really well. And Lord, I just pray that this word would wash over them and be refreshing to them. You know, for those that don't know you, for those that aren't walking with you the way they should, I pray that it would be a wake-up call for them this morning, that they would turn to you, our loving, gracious Savior. Thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice. Thank you for making a way for each one of us. Thank you for coming for those that recognize their need for a Savior, Lord. For anybody that doesn't know you, Lord, I just pray you'd be working on their heart, revealing their need for you in their life. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.